All right, good morning. Open your Bibles, please. So, Paul's letter to a saint, Philemon, who the church in Colossae meets in his house. The letter sent through Tychicus, along with Ephesians, letter accompanied by Onesimus, who's now the subject of this letter. So, Paul's letter is a similar style to letters of that day. The Roman letters would follow a particular pattern, and we see this all throughout the New Testament. There'd be a greeting, introduction, body, and closing. So last week we looked at an overview and the introduction and the the closing, which is very similar to Colossians where we just came from. So this is a natural transition from going from Colossians to Philemon, where the same body, the same body that Paul just exhorted for their love and their maturity and encouraged them to forgive one another and gave them instructions on slaves and masters, now we get a practical application of that. This is probably the most personal and the most practical situation that we see laid out in the New Testament. This entire letter is devoted to two brothers and one situation that has impact on the entire church. And that's why it's been so beloved over the years, but sadly, most of us have never spent much time studying it or or digging into it, and that's why we wanted to do this right after the book of Colossians. So in our structure in the body this morning, what we're going to focus on. So the first seven verses I will call the affirmation. Paul affirms who Philemon is, who his family is in the church that meets in his house. He's a loving, faithful brother. We're going to look at Paul's appeal in verses 8 through 11, how he appeals to him, on what grounds. Then we're going to look at the sending, how Paul sends Onesimus back to his home in Colossae. And then we're going to look at the receiving in the end, how Paul instructs Philemon to receive Onesimus, his slave, now brother. And so in this section of the text, we're going to look at a very practical application of the book of Colossians in in two main areas. One, the practice of how slaves and masters now united in Christ, who are equal in him, how does this play out in the real world? What does this look like, Paul? Give us an illustration, and this book seeks as an illustration to that passage. So if you would, turn to Colossians. I want to read that passage again. So Colossians, we're going to be at the end of chapter 3, starting in verse 22. So if you don't know where it is, it's probably about 20 pages back in your Bible from uh, Philemon. So as Paul directs all of these interpersonal relationships, husbands, wives, fathers, children, uh, he spends the most time on slaves and masters. So I think Paul certainly had this situation in mind, especially sending Onesimus back. Picking up in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, working heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ the Lord, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What's amazing about this exhortation is that Paul goes into great detail, but he does not contradict himself. He tells the the slaves to obey their masters. This is why he's sending Onesimus back. He tells them to work unto the Lord because this is his new identity. And he tells the master to be just and fair. So I'm sure as he's writing this, he has these two men in mind, and he's appealing to this knowing that they would have all read the letter to Colossae, and then the letter addressed specifically to Philemon. 
And as we looked at last week, this is a working out of their adoption. This is the adoption of lost slaves to sin, no matter what your station in life, who are now free in Christ. And this is an exemplification of it. Those who have no family name, no inheritance, now sit at the Father's table. Now are sons. Now are brothers. And so he's going to address the dynamic here. How does what, happen in, what happens in Philemon's house relate to what happens in the Father's house? Because in Philemon's house, he's the master. Onesimus is the slave. But in the Father's house, they're both sons and heirs with Christ. And so we're going to see how this plays out in the letter. One of the commentators I read this week had a great assessment of this. We spent a lot of time on slavery last week, so I'm not going uh, to spend any time on it this week. So if you have questions, the message is on the website. But in his commentary, Newt Larson, so parents, if you're looking for baby names, uh, Newt is a good one. Uh, it'll be up on the screen. So he says this, when Christian ethics and cultural practices conflict, which is where we find ourselves now, okay, the, the, the ethic of slave and master being both brothers in Christ, when they conflict, the Christian response is reformation of the heart and mind rather than revolution over social institutions. Because the gospel must transform hearts and minds first before we can expect change in the culture. And far too often we think that these larger social systems should be changed first. But the gospel always addresses hearts and minds. It is always an internal transformation. It's the same thing that we see when women deal with crisis pregnancies. We must appeal to the heart first and to the mind first. Laws are helpful tools in these things, but ultimately it is a spiritual issue. It is a heart issue that is an inside-out transformation that the gospel seeks And so now that there is an inside-out transformation in in Onesimus, now we can deal with the cultural uh, reality at hand. So that's the first thing, the the dynamic between slaves and masters. The second thing is forgiveness. When we looked at this, hopefully your finger's still in Colossians. Sorry, I didn't tell you to leave it there. But one of the things that we, we say very often is when the writers of Scripture repeat themselves, we pay attention. And so in Colossians chapter 3, There's one word he says three times when he's exhorting them how to deal with one another. And that is forgiveness. And again, I don't think Paul was ignorant to this situation, having that in mind. So chapter 3, picking up in verse 12. New creatures put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Remember, when we were in Colossians, these, these characteristics can only be worked out in the midst of other people. These are characteristics that need someone else to train you in humility and meekness and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Three times. If you have a complaint, forgive one another as the Lord has has forgiven you. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's essentially what Paul is doing in this letter. He is appealing to a master and a slave. He's appealing to to forgiveness because they have been forgiven by Christ and out of the bonds of love. Because when Paul makes his appeal, he says this is for the sake of love. So what we have to understand, too, when we're thinking about forgiveness is that we're not dealing with a false situation. There's a legitimate wrong here. Onesimus made a contract, an agreement with his master to serve him, and he ran away, maybe stealing from him. 
So when we talk about forgiveness, it doesn't mean that the offense is not real. We're dealing with a real offense here. But what we are dealing with is that the grace is even more real. The grace of the gospel, the grace of God towards sinners is stronger than the offense of one to another. There's another thing here too. The gospel speaks a lot more about forgiveness than it does fairness. Because if it was fair, Onesimus would get what he deserved. But so often we appeal to fairness when it comes to our own lives, but have a difficult time in forgiveness when it comes to others. But let's be honest, we don't want fairness. We don't want what we deserve. Because as we're going to walk through this letter, we're going to see that we are Onesimus. We are slaves who've run away from our master and stolen from him and want nothing to do with him and get as far away from him as we can. We want forgiveness, which is what Paul appeals to in this letter. One of the other things I want to do, too, is I want us to think about this because we appeal to the forgiveness of Christ for our own sins. But do we do the same for other people? We want forgiveness in our situations, but do we have the same grace and forgiveness for others? And we're going to see a couple things here, how we are like Onesimus, but also how Paul is like Christ and how he exemplifies the love of the gospel in dealing with a brother who's run away. So now we're going to read through Paul's letter to Philemon. I'm going to read through the whole letter. I'd like to do this. I wish we could do it more often. So when it's a book this small, we're going to read through the entire thing. And I encourage you, in our soundbite culture, read through Scripture in its entirety. As often as you can, read through books of the Bible in their entirety. So you get the author's intent. You get the author's argumentation. And it definitely guards us against cherry-picking and reading ourselves into the text. So picking up in verse 1, Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that, we might ser- in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he has parted for you for a while, that, he might have, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. 
Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with, you, be with your spirit. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, You are the God of creation. The God who sustains all things in heaven and earth. The God whose mighty right hand upholds the very winds and rain. Yet You are also the God of redemption and reconciliation. High and lifted up, yet imminent with us, taking on flesh to walk among us, that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Taking us, runaway slaves, prodigal sons and daughters, redeeming us to be children of the King. What a beautiful picture of that this morning. Lord, I pray that your word would challenge us, that it would teach us, that it would instruct us and direct us to remember that our identity is first and foremost in you. That you declare what is right and how we ought to act. And that when we deal with one another, especially in the church, that we see the love of Jesus Christ first and foremost, the forgiveness that we've been shown, the reconciliation that we have to you, and the reconciliation that we have to one another, that we may be unified, that you may be glorified, and that the world may wonder at the way that we love and treat one another. It is only because you loved us first. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what's great about reading this letter is we see Paul as a master theologian, master evangelist, church planner, many other things. But he is beautiful in his argumentation. He is so wise in the way that he strings this thing together. There are so many things here that that show us his, his wisdom. And one of them is how you begin an appeal. This is wise. Pay attention. If you're going to ask someone for something, don't just lead right in and, and slap them upside the head and say, you should do this. What does he do first? He affirms his faithful brother. He appeals to his character in Christ. I know of your love. I know of your faith. This is how we approach reconciliation and correction. First thing we do is appeal to the love of Christ. If they don't listen, then we slap them upside the head. But he begins with encouragement, and he begins with compliments. And Paul advocates, advocates for Onesimus that Christ advocates for us, appealing for us, interceding for us taking on his own account the sins of those he represents. So we're going to see how Paul exemplifies Christ in this letter. We're also going to look at some examples of how we identify with Onesimus and how we can learn from these situations because there are no masters or slaves in here. But the principles in this letter apply to every one of us. 
So let's pick up in verse 8. It begins with accordingly, essentially therefore, meaning everything I just said in verses 4 through 7, that is all true. Because of that, that is the grounds for my appeal. My appeal is on your love and your faith and your refreshment toward the saints. Because I know your, your character, this is how I approach you. And because of your character, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, required I'm not going to. I can call on my authority in Christ, and boldness is not an issue for me. If you've read any of Paul, Paul is not afraid to be bold. But there's a time and place for that. Just because you can be bold doesn't mean you need to be. As Christians, we can try the graceful approach first. And he, he prefers this brotherly appeal because they both know what's required here. I could, I could command you, but you know as well as I do. When you read the rest of this letter, when you read the rest of my appeal, you're going to know why I'm asking what I'm asking. So the first thing we, we see here is though, even though he can be bold, Paul is very much like, like Christ. Christ was bold when he needed to be. He would call those Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He would stand up, tell people that I am the light of the world. He would tell them to repent and believe because the kingdom of God is here. There is time for boldness. There's also time for grace. He was graceful the woman at the well. He was graceful with the woman who was bleeding. He was graceful with the blind man sitting by the pool every day. And so Paul exemplifies this. When he needs to be hard, he is. When he needs to be bold, he is. But when he's graceful, he is. So this is an important lesson for us, too, just before we get into this, this letter, is knowing when, when to be bold and knowing when to be gracious. Uh, I tell guys all the time, you need the right tool for the job. As I was thinking about this, thinking about sandpaper. Anybody who's ever worked with, with, with wood? Sometimes you need 40 grit. If this is a jacked up piece of wood, it's got all kinds of jagged things, you need really rough, for, so the lower the number in sandpaper, the, the rougher it is. When that, that, that wood is messed up, you need 40 grit sandpaper to peel off all the rough edges. There's a time for that. But when there's minor imperfections, when little things need to be straightened out, you get to higher grit, higher grade sandpaper, 500, 1,000, very fine, just to polish what is already pretty smooth. This is what Paul is doing here. He's a faithful brother. He doesn't need 40 grit. He needs a little polishing. So I think this is a great example for us. Some of you are 40 grit all the time. Some of you are like, everything is a rough edge that I have to work out right now. You don't always need 40 grit. It's not always that bad. You can, you can apply the higher grade. But some of you are fine grit sandpaper all the time. There is a jagged piece of wood that you will, that you will rub on for the rest of your life with a thousand grit sandpaper, and it's never going to get smoothed out. Sometimes you need to be rough. Sometimes you need to be bold. And, we, and there, there's, there's wisdom in that, and Paul shows us this, that there is wisdom in when to be rough and when to be gentle. What things need to be worked out and brought down to level, and what things just need to be smoothed a little bit. And so Paul is in a, in a, in a smoothing process here. And so he, he appeals for love's sake, verse 9. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal for you. This is the gospel. This is not empty love that fits on Hallmark cards. This is the love of God who sent his son. This is the love of God who redeemed Paul on the road to Damascus. This is the love of God who took him from his sin and hatred of God and made him love him. 
This is the love that sent Paul as a missionary. The love that converted Philemon. The love that converted Onesimus. That love. The love that he references in Colossians. That binds us together in Christ. That is the love. That is the sake with which Paul is appealing here. And he says he's writing as an old man. Now a prisoner of, for wisdom in Christ. Excuse me. A prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So there's added wisdom and patience in Paul in his old age. Probably in his 60s at this time. And his, in his situation. I'm an older man. I'm, I'm in prison. And he's saying us that the same love that I am appealing to you in is the same love that has me in prison for the gospel right now. This is how serious I take this. It is the love for Christ and the love for the lost that has put me in prison for his name's sake. And I am appealing to that same name and that same love. So I'm appealing to you, brother, out of love. But I'm appealing for Onesimus, brother, out of love. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. He appeals as a spiritual father to Onesimus. Think about this. Philemon is is in Colossae. Onesimus ran away long enough to go all the way to Rome and find Paul, 1,200 to 1,400 miles depending on on the trip. He's been gone a while, so now he's reading this, and he sees the name Onesimus pop up for the first time. You mean that guy? That guy who was a useless worker for me. And I'm sure Epaphras, who's from Colossae, filled him in on the details. Seems like Onesimus was pretty honest here. He's now your child in the faith. The Lord has redeemed him. And then to take it one step further, remember that Tychicus delivered this letter. And who is his travel companion? Onesimus. As Philemon is reading the letter, that Paul became the father to Onesimus, he looks up and he sees this man who used to be a useless slave now standing before him, a redeemed brother. There's a a lot of tension here that we don't get if we just read over this this quickly. And this spiritual language that it is only through our adoption, only through this spiritual family that Paul can say, I became his father in a sense that matters for eternity. He is now my child. And on that ground, I'm appealing to you. So it is with us. We, too, are no different than Onesimus, useless slaves who run away at the first chance we get. We are wretches. I'm out of here. I want my own freedom. I want to be my own God. I am gone. I don't want to do what is right and be obedient to my master. But one intercedes for us, calls us sons, and appeals advocates on our behalf. Imagine Philemon looking at Onesimus. That guy, he's now redeemed. How many of us have been in that conversation? You? You're now a Christian? You? Oh, I know you. I remember you. You're a pastor? You don't see how many, how many people have fallen out of their seat when they find out I'm a pastor. That is what God does. He redeems us and he does it through his son. And Paul is exemplifying this. Paul beautifully acts as a spiritual parent as he should i can't come myself but writing this in my own hand my own appeal to you this is my child in the faith i appeal to you on his behalf 
And so this is an encouragement for us as well. We take our freedom in Christ, our sonship, we can become parents in the faith. We can become spiritual parents to new believers, to disciple them, to discipline them, to advocate for them, and direct them in doing what is right. And Paul is a great example in that. This is how you intercede for someone and advocate and advocate for someone in the faith. And so Paul says, I'm not ignorant to the situation. I know what was going on. I've been filled in. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to, me, to you and to me. And we don't get the, the play here, but Onesimus' word or name in Greek means useful. And here he's saying, I, I know he was useless. Now he truly is useful. And Paul does not shy away from the truth. I understand the reality of this. I'm not working under false pretenses here. But he ran away as a useless pagan. Now he's sent back as a useful brother. And now he is useful to both Paul and Philemon. Because he has been useful to Paul. He's been an encouragement to him. He served him in his ministry in Rome. But now he's sending him home to serve in Philemon's house and for the kingdom. No different than us. Before Christ, we were selfish and insubordinate. We were useless. No good to God or anyone else. But he redeems us that we might be those ministers of reconciliation that we read from earlier. Ambassadors for Christ, being useful. It's amazing how God redeems those who have nothing good of their own to stand on. And then gives them his name, gives them his legacy, gives them his inheritance and sends them out into the world. Now you are useful. Now you are good because of what Christ has done in you. Amen. And he says, I am sending him back. Now we get this transition. I'm appealing to you as a brother and for another brother. Now I'm sending him back. I'm telling you what I'm doing. I'm sending him back. But not just sending him, not just sending a person. I'm sending my very heart. Beautiful language here. Even though Onesimus has been useful, he served Paul well. Paul must do what is right. Because Paul would be contradicting himself if he said, no, I'm going to subjugate the... um, or subvert the laws and expectations for masters and slaves. No, I'm going to send him back to you because this is what is right, because I'm going to be obedient to the laws. But he does not take this lightly. He appeals to his very heart, his spiritual son. This is not just a legalistic decision. Yeah, we must do what is right, so I'm sending him back. This is my heart. This is not easy for me. Imagine the uncertainty of Onesimus, knowing the circumstances in which he left but also the courage, knowing that when he returns, he's no longer a slave to man, he's a slave to Christ. And that is the standing in which he serves. This is another way that Paul exemplifies Christ for us. Because even though he created the law itself, Christ obeyed the law. Christ did not fail in any aspect of the law. And so Paul is saying, I'm respecting the authorities that are in place. I'm respecting your authority as master. I am going to obey the laws here, but I'm appealing to you as brother. He's, he's appealing to a higher standard even though he's obeying the law, as Jesus always did. Again, masterfully on Paul's part. But Paul tells him, verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul's saying, truly, if it's better for me, he stays here. He's more useful to me here. I'm not doing this for myself. If it was was for me, 
I would just tell, I would command you to keep him here because he's now useful to me. But he reminds Philemon of his needs, the gospel work and his imprisonment. And knowing that he might serve and serve on your behalf. If you leave him here with me, he's still your, your servant, but you get the credit for it. He can serve in your stead here, but yet I'm going to send him back to you. But, here's where it kind of transitions, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but by your own accord. But, Paul would rather fulfill all the obligations and have peace in the body than do what is best for him. Another good example for us. And also, he submits his apostolic authority to Philemon's earthly authority. It's interesting here because as an apostle... I could be bold in Christ. I could command you to do this, but I don't want it to be under compulsion. I want it to be by your own accord. And this is what we have to understand and what a lot of the world doesn't understand and a lot of teaching and a lot of churches don't understand. We are not legalists who have to do things out of some kind of guilt or, or, or compulsion. We are free men and women in Christ who get to do things. We do them of our own accord. We want to do them because we want to be faithful to our God and Father. We want to glorify the name of Christ. In the freedom of our adoption, we live out what it means to be free sons who freely obey, who freely love, who freely give up of our own autonomy, our own desire to be masters of our own universe so that we might do what is required of us, is pleasing to the Lord. So I think about the, the difference between we're not kids who have to do the dishes, stomping their feet and grumbling all the way to the sink. We are children who sit at our father's table and get to participate in the banquet. And if we are feasting with our father forever and we have to do a few dishes, we will rejoice and whistle while we work while we do it. Because it is a pleasure and it is a joy to be invited to our Father's table, and to be about our Father's business. We are not children who are begrudgingly reluctant to obey. Not out of compulsion, but of your own accord. I'm appealing to your character, brother. For this, perhaps, verse 15, is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Perhaps. What's Paul's, what's Paul's point here? So what if, just think for a moment, what if he had to run away? What if he had to seek me out or, or find me? We don't know how they, they met in Rome. What if he had to go away so that he could be redeemed? What if his rebellion led to his salvation? Isn't that better than if he remained at home as a reluctant servant? The Lord had to bring him halfway across the empire to change his heart. And he used Paul in this whole situation. He used Paul to mediate on the way back. So that all this would happen so that you would gain back a brother. You may have lost a slave, but you're receiving back a brother and not just a brother in the flesh, but a brother for eternity. For this, perhaps, is why we parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. And he's not coming back unchanged. He's not coming back the same useless guy you lost however long ago. No longer is a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. This is beautiful. This is the hinge of the whole letter. 
more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. This is the weight behind the letter right here. This is Paul's whole appeal. Our identity in Christ is our primary identity. Our station in life is not our primary identity. We've addressed this so much, but it's a helpful reminder. So often, especially for men, we see ourselves by what we do for a living. We see ourselves by where where we are on the success ladder or where we are on the totem pole. I'm not that important. Paul's appeal here is he's more than a servant. That's no longer his primary identity. Now he is a brother. Now that's who you are. Your adoption is the same as his adoption. You are one in Christ. And even if he remains a servant, he will be a much better servant now because now he serves Christ. He's not people-pleasing anymore. He's not doing it for your favor. He's doing it for the glory of Christ. But now, he is much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In the flesh, he's going to be a better servant, working into the Lord. But now, he's also a brother in the Lord. Now he won't just work around your house. He'll be a servant in the church. He will work for the kingdom. Now, he will serve the entire body and not just serve you. Now he's much more valuable, and that is worth losing your slave for a time. So, here's what it comes down to. Essentially what Paul is saying here is, here's what you ought to do. Here's how you ought to receive him. I've given you my appeal. I've telling you under what circumstances I am sending him. Now, this is how you ought to receive him. So, if you consider me your partner, the basis of... Philemon receiving Onesimus is that Paul is his partner. Now, we lose the force of this word in English. We looked at last week, the Greek word koinonia means fellowship. This, this word here comes from the same root. If you see me as one who has fellowship in Christ. Last week, we looked at the, the fellowship that we have through faith. If you see me as a common partner in Christ, if we have a, a shared fellowship in Christ, On that basis, receive him as you would receive me. Receiving him based on faith, not on station. So this is something amazing that that Paul does. Because anywhere else, someone would appeal to his authority. I'm an apostle. But there's no distinction between a revered apostle and a runaway slave with a whole lot of baggage. In Christ, they are received the same way. In Christ, they are received as they receive Paul the Apostle. So what an encouragement and a challenge to us when we greet another brother and sister, receive them as we would receive Paul the Apostle. Because we have all been redeemed by the same blood. There is no hierarchy and value in Christ. We welcome every saint that way. You were a wretched sinner? Me too. You were a runaway slave? Me too. Welcome, brother. This is why we rejoice and the, saint, or the angels in heaven rejoice when someone repents from their sins and turns. And this is how Paul instructs Philemon to receive him. And then he takes it a step further. I know, again, I'm not ignorant to the situation. Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. This is how we know Onesimus did not leave on good terms. The, the, the word here, if he has wronged you, it's, it's literally against righteousness. If he has done anything that is not righteous or owes you, 
If he's, if he's slacked on his work and cost you money, if he's stolen from you, charge it to my account. I, don't even ha- I shouldn't have to explain how this sh- points us to Christ. But I must. That is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. That you have done against righteousness. You have wronged the God of heaven. You owe your very life. But one steps in your place and says, charge it to my account. That's what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to put your faith in someone who can pay a debt you can't pay. That's why every one of us here in Christ breathes a sigh of relief and says, hallelujah, praise the Lord within our soul because that's how we stand before God. But if you do not know Christ, you have no one to, to be your advocate. You have no one to intercede for you. You have no one with whom to take your debt, your sin, your wickedness and put it on their account. That's why you cry out to the one who can. Because it is the one who took Paul's debt who trained Paul to respond this way. It is the one who took our debt who calls us to respond this way. The gospel changes everything because in the world this makes no sense. I'm not going to pay for someone else's debt. I'm not going to stand in his place. That's on him. He made that mistake. Charge it to my account. Because my my account's been paid by someone else. And in case you think that Paul was not serious, this is very emphatic in the Greek. The I comes in here three times. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. This is the strongest sentence in the entire letter. I will do this. I am writing this with my own hand because this is how serious I take this. I will pay it. I, the apostle, I stake my very reputation on this man's conversion. And then, this beautiful little jab that comes at the end, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. And I'm not even going to mention that you wouldn't even be in Christ if it wasn't for me, but I won't say anything about that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's essentially what's, what's going on here. You don't, you don't believe me? You're walking proof. Just saying. But I'm not saying. <laughs> yes, brother. I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Yeah, I'm cashing in. You owe me. You owe me your very self. You are a Christian because of what the Lord has done through me, and I'm cashing in, but not for myself. I'm calling in a debt on behalf of Onesimus. I am calling in my marker on behalf of someone else. It's beautiful. Yes, I want some benefit. I want spiritual profit from this. What we don't see in the English, the word for benefit here is onenemi in the Greek. Same root as Onesimus. I want some usefulness from this. I want some benefit from this. I am calling in my debt in the same way I'm calling you and appealing to you for Onesimus. What is that benefit? I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Do I want money? Do I want to be reimbursed somehow? Do I want a plaque in my name? What is Paul's benefit? Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, if you remember, where did we see that earlier? Earlier, we saw that he commends uh, Philemon for refreshing the saints in verse 7. 
says, I have derived much joy because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So I want some refreshment like they have refreshment. But I think there's kind of an underlying appeal here. He says, I am sending Onesimus my very heart. Refresh my heart in the Lord. I am sending him back to you. But I know that you will send him back to me. This is what I am calling in, that I want to be reunited with my brother who's been such a useful partner in the gospel for me. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, verse 21, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. I love this. He appeals to, he appeals to his character. He knows who he is, and he's not wavering from that. I'm confident. I'm giving you all the details. I know you'll make the right decision. And he says this, there's, a, there's a, uh, a strong confidence here, knowing that you will do even more than I say. As if it's already done. I know it's as good as done. Because I know your, your character. I'm asking you, on face value, receive him as a brother. That's a, that's a bare minimum. I know you will do that. But I'm asking you to do even more than I say. What is the even more? Set him free from his, from his slavery. Uh, Send him back to Paul, most likely. We don't know. But we know that Paul is appealing to the grace that we have been given. We've been given more grace and more forgiveness than we could ever repay. And so out of that, he's appealing to him to repay grace and forgiveness toward another brother. So, enough of that. I've made my appeal. I rest my case. I know you'll do what's right. Prepare a room for me. At the same time, I love how he just weaves this in there. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. Okay, we're done. On to other business. Prepare a guest room for me. But I think this is kind of the, the, the final nail in the argument. Basically saying, I'm coming soon. And I assume when I get there, everything's going to be straightened out. Just so you know, get, get a room ready. I'm, I'm coming. I love that. There's one more thing we miss in the English here. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. These are not singular yous. These are plural. He's now assuming that the rest of the church is still reading this and that the, the, the prayers of the church will bring him to them. Like we said last week, what Philemon does to Onesimus, how two brothers in the church reconcile will affect the rest of the church. He now brings the rest of the church in this, that your prayers are what I rely on, that hopefully your prayers will bring me to you. And we don't know if he ever made it back to Colossae, probably not. So, one more thing. What's at stake in this letter? What if Philemon doesn't do what Paul asks? If he does, if he receives in the way he should, you are completely uh, fulfilling and affirming everything that I've said about you. The gospel works. We're reconciled as brothers. But what if he doesn't? What if he treats Onesimus like he deserves? Onesimus in that culture deserved to be beaten, flogged, potentially even killed. He deserved the full wrath of the Roman army on him because he broke the law. But Philemon deserved the full wrath of God poured out on him. Another stood, stepped in his place. Paul steps in front of Onesimus. What does that say about the grace of Christ if he receives him? What does it say about the grace of Christ if he doesn't? Is it enough? And so my final thought for us then what does it say about us if we treat people like they deserve? 
What does it say about us if we're seeking fairness for ourselves, but not willing to give forgiveness for others? What what does it say about the grace of Christ if we've received forgiveness from the wrath of God for our transgression, yet are so willing to pour our wrath on someone else who's wronged us? This letter, we could spend way more time on it than we have, but it has much to teach us. So every time we think of how do I respond to another Christian who has wronged me, we should ask the question, what if Christ treated me the way I deserved? What if Christ gave me what was fair? But I want to end this on a really cool note. Um, if you know your church history, Ignatius, uh, he was a bishop of Antioch, early 2nd century, so around 100 A.D., he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. He was approaching his martyrdom in Rome. He was about to die. And he's thanking them for the, the support of the church in Ephesus. But look at one of the things that he credits with his encouragement. Seeing then, this is uh, Ignatius writing, that I received in the name of God your whole congregation in the person of Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love and your bishop. I beseech you by Jesus Christ to love him. And to all resemble him, for blessed is he who granted to you to be worthy to obtain such a bishop. The word bishop just means overseer, another term for elder. Now this is extra biblical. We don't know this for certain. Church history has preserved this. It's essentially what we we think happened. But imagine this. This slave is useless. Now redeemed, and we think Philemon did the, the, the right thing here, becomes the overseer of Antioch, one of the largest and most influential churches. It was the the sending ground for all the the, uh, missionaries in Asia. And he is an encouragement representing the entire body to Ignatius. That is what the redeeming grace of God looks like. A slave to a saint. A slave to an overseer, an elder of God's people. So I just pray that you reflect on this beautiful application of the gospel and this letter that exemplifies the love of Christ through Paul, our own wickedness and the grace and forgiveness we've received like Onesimus, and that God would be gloried, glorified in redeeming and transforming lives from slaves of sin to slaves of Christ. Let's pray. God, we praise you. We praise you that you are God of mercy. That you are God of love and forgiveness. That while you are justly a God of wrath, you poured out your love and your forgiveness on us through your Son and not your wrath. I pray that we would remember this and carry this around with us. That we did not get what we deserved. That we in the body would love one another well, would forgive one another, would live like Christ to one another. Because we never know what you will do in redeeming someone. We never know what you have planned. We are called to obedience, called to be faithful children, not out of compulsion. Lord, let us be joyful in our service of you. Let us be fervent and unwavering 
and our commitment to the gospel and its application in our lives, especially in the church. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.